This coming Wednesday, I'm supposed to speak at Tyler with the Rice Road Church. And they're doing a Wednesday night study, different characters, more obscure characters throughout the Bible. And I've been asked to preach on Nathan. I must tell you, I've never done a study on Nathan. I think a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, Rick did some work on Nathan and leadership. But it really stirred my interest to begin to dig into this fascinating individual. And I will tell you the end at the beginning. Everybody needs a Nathan. Everybody needs a Nathan in their life. And now I'll try to build a case why. Nathan just drops on the scene. It's as though he just comes out of nowhere. We know that's not the case. But when Nathan appears in the Bible, it's just like, poof, there he is. Nothing said about his history. Nothing said about his previous prophetic work. Nothing said about his family. Nothing said about the area he came from. Nothing said about where he was born. I think the reason for that is is because all that really doesn't matter. What really matters is what Nathan said and how Nathan served. Nathan was one of many who are called a court or royal prophet. And what that simply means is they served in the court of royalty, the court of kings. And sometimes those prophets were less than honorable. They were corrupt. But in the case of Nathan and his counterpart Gad, of which there's even less said about, they served in the court of David and of Solomon and served as their, their prophets, their messengers from God. You know, we know a lot about a number of prophets because there's a lot written about them and they wrote a lot. I think we could equally call Isaiah and we could call Daniel as well royal prophets. And we have books written by those men carrying their name. But there is not much mentioned as far as anything that Nathan wrote. There is a brief reference to the book of Nathan. I think that's covered in some of the things we'll talk about, and I'll talk about that at the end. But there's not a book by his name. There's not a book that he's written, per se. And again, he just kind of drops on the scene. As far as I'm able to calculate, there's three with one passing reference. Three complete references, but three complete references, one passing reference to Nathan in the Old Testament. And this is where he appears, first of all, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 2. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside the tent curtains. We begin to see the value that Nathan have, that Nathan is really important to David. And here are the three occasions. I'm going to summarize them for time's sake. I'll try to reference them to you as I go, and if you have an interest in following through on that, you can do that at your own time in your home. The first of those occasions is as we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. As the text said in verse 1, there's a time of peace that has come. David was a man of war, and now 
the battles are over and there's a time of peace. And David begins to look at himself. And as he looks at himself in his house, he sees that he lives in a house of cedar. And that might not mean a lot to us today in our brick and hardy plank homes. But a house of cedar in that time, at that location, was palatial. <clears throat> it was a very comfortable home. And it was something that was, was well, well regarded as an upper level kind of home. <clears throat> And David sees that he lives in a house of cedar. I live in this very, very nice home. But what about God? God's worshipped in a tent. As far as David's concerned, that's, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that God should still be worshipped in a tent while I, the king, am living in this house of cedar. So he says to Nathan, this is, what, this is what I want to do. I want to build a house for God. How noble. And Nathan says, I think that's a good idea. Until the Lord overnight appears to Nathan. And then tells Nathan, you go tell David. And as you continue to read 2 Samuel chapter 7... It would seem at first blush that what God is doing is he's chiding David. When did I ever ask you to build me a house? When did I, I set you up. I put you in your place. I made you king. But he's not chiding David. What he's telling David is this. When did I ever ask you to build a house? Don't you realize I'm the one that now set you on the throne and made you king? You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. And that's the first occasion. Following that, in verse 18 of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David gives this long, great, eloquent prayer of praise and gratitude toward God because of all that God had, had given him and how God had blessed him. The second occasion that we find David appearing is probably more noteworthy in our, our minds we may be well familiar with that, but probably more noteworthy is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's the occasion in which David commits sexual immorality, adultery, with Bathsheba. Instead of going out to war as men of war had done and as kings usually did with the troops, David stayed behind. And a result of staying behind, he called for Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. And as a result of that illicit immorality, a child was conceived. And now David is going to be found out. And so he has a number of ways in which he seeks to go about trying to cover his tracks, as it were to try to disguise the adulterous relationship that had taken place between him and Bathsheba. It ends, sadly, on three different levels. It ends, sadly, because Uriah dies. David is complicit in the death of Uriah. He organizes and arranges the death. Second, the baby that was conceived dies. 
And then third, the misery never departed from the house of David. He said, the sword shall never depart from your house. Nathan appears to David and tells David a nice parable about a man who had a stranger come to his house. And he had multiple lambs. But his next-door neighbor had just one lamb. And so what he did was he went and got his next-door neighbor's one lamb and prepared that one lamb as a meal for the stranger. Whenever he had hundreds of lambs out here, David is indignant, and that is an understatement about that. In fact, he says, that man ought to die. Nathan said, David, you missed the point. You're the man. The third occasion that we find Nathan appearing in the life of David is found in 1 Kings chapter 1. David is approximately 70 years old at this time and possibly Nathan about that same age. So of some age and some experience in life, but David's health is failing. The Shunammite woman is being his nurse and taking care of him, and David's health begins to fail. Death is approaching. His son Adonijah sees the opportunity to seize the throne and goes about making his own political alliances whereby to secure the power of the throne. He doesn't call Nathan, doesn't call Zadok the priest to be a part of his cabinet. Nathan hears about it. Nathan finds out and goes to Bathsheba and says, listen, Adonijah is over here plotting his insurrection. He's going to take the throne when David dies. Didn't David say that Solomon would have the throne? Yes. Then here's what you need to do, Bathsheba. You need to go into David, and you need to present the evidence to David and tell David what's going on. And then, about the time you finish telling that story, I will come in and I will corroborate that, that evidence and tell David what's going on. And Bathsheba does. And Nathan does. And Zadok is called. And all those others that were in Solomon's orbit were called. And immediately Solomon is enthroned as king. Adonijah hears what's going on. He knows his goose is cooked. He knows his time is short and it's over. But Solomon is put on the throne. One other relatively obscure mention of Nathan, which is, I think, a compliment to him. In 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 5, when David and Bathsheba have more children, after Bathsheba becomes his wife, they name one of their sons Nathan. Now, usually when we name a child, a girl or a boy after someone that's special to us. Maybe it's a family name. Maybe it's someone that's a close friend. Maybe someone that's helped us somewhere along the way. Usually it's in memory of 
or a point of gratitude toward or recognition of or value of the person that's, that's been done something good for us. And it seems at this point, that is exactly what takes place with the name of Nathan. Nathan's name means he gives. He gives, he gives blessings. He only gives blessings, he causes transformations. He gives, Nathan gives. And now then Solomon and Bathsheba name one of their sons after Nathan. You can see just by a brief overview here, we're going to come back and, and go through this again in detail in just a moment, but I'm just giving you a highlight here, introducing the, the events that take place in the life of David and Nathan. You can see by this that Nathan occupies a, a prominent role in the life of David, but there's one other, one other little sidebar that, that occurs in all of this. Not only is he important to David and essential to David, he also uh, is essential to Solomon as well. In fact, when you look at the three events, Solomon is included in all three events. When you look at the event that takes place with regard to the throne, Solomon is the son that will sit upon the throne. When you look at the event of the child that dies, Solomon is the one who's named, and Nathan is there and renames him Jedidiah. And when you look at the third event, Solomon is there, the one to be enthroned. So really what you have in the case, what you have in the case of David here is, and Solomon is, you have Solomon is the one through whom Nathan is going to work and in fact is probably the prophetic architect of the kingdom of Israel through Solomon. So he, he provides an essential role, not only for David, but an essential role in the life of Solomon as well. We'll see this at the end, but, but had Nathan not been there, had Nathan not, not occupied the place that he did in the life of David, Solomon and his reign as king, and the fulfillment of the Davidic lineage, lineage would have, a dynasty would, have not been, would not have taken place. It would have been subverted along the way. And so Nathan is there to secure the throne for Solomon all along the way. So you can see he's, important, he's an important character throughout Old Testament history. And you can see he, he is, he's essential to David. But that being said, that's nice stuff. That's good history. But the real thing is, how is he essential to us? How is he necessary, necessary for us? What lessons do we learn from, from Nathan and his life with David? Well, the first thing I'd like to suggest to you is, from Nathan we learn we need to be ready to be confronted by the Word of God. We need to be ready to be confronted by the Word of God. In fact, throughout the narrative in 1 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, 1 Chronicles 22, and all the lessons, all the passages in Chronicles, repeatedly over and over it says, The Lord said through Nathan the prophet. The Lord said through Nathan the prophet. And what takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 7? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord appears to Nathan the prophet, and the Lord says to Nathan, Go tell David. And now Nathan confronts David. David is a man that's been blessed. From the very beginning, he's been blessed. 
You think about when he's called before the house of, 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 of Saul to be, to be the one that's going to play the music, to be the soothing one in the house of Saul to, to, to appease and to quiet his anger and his disturbed spirit. God is with Nathan there. You remember David, whenever he slays the giant, God's with David. Remember the prey that takes place after that? Saul has slain his thousand and David has slain his ten thousand. God's with David. When Saul pursues David, God's with David. David is a man that is blessed by God. Why wouldn't he think he could build this place for God? And yet, David is confronted with the word of God. When did I ever ask you to build me a house? No, I will establish for you a house. I have made you great. And furthermore, he says, I will tell you the name of your son that's going to sit on the throne. David didn't name him. God named him. And he said, his name shall be Solomon. 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 9. David had to be confronted by the word of God. David was confronted by the Word of God. And so, if we're going to take advantage of the life of David, one thing we learn is we can't be afraid to be confronted by the Word of God. No, second of all, we can't be afraid to confront with the Word of God. It's not just to be confronted with it, but to confront with the Word of God. And that brings us to the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. As I said, David was a man of war. He learns why he can't build the temple. It's not just that God has a great deal of love greater for Solomon than he does David. David is a man of war, and the text will say repeatedly, he is a man of blood. I wonder sometimes, just as a sidebar, our mental picture of David. Uh, kind of a soft-soaping kind of guy. Kind of a handsome dude. You know, he lives in the palace. Has everybody wait on him. And, I mean, if there's a good-looking guy, David's got to be the good-looking guy. And there's got to be a guy that's got to be, have his hands clean. It's the king. The king asks everybody else to do it, right? No. I don't know what he looked like. He was the last of the litter. And the text seems to indicate he was a runt. But he was a man of blood. He was a man of war. He was not the king that anybody wanted to go up and fight against. Because not only was God with him, but David had slain his ten thousands. Blood flowed from his hands. David was not a wimp. David was not a sissy. David was a man who understood war, and he understood how to spill blood. And God said, because you are a man of blood. You can't build my house. And on this occasion, when as the king he should be out fighting the battle on behalf of the nation, he stays back because he gets a little bit lazy. And his laziness leads to lust. His lust leads to adultery. And his adultery leads to murder. Oh, how the day would have been different. 
Oh, how the story of his life would have been different had David just on that day given in to his own laziness, his own fatigue from fighting battles, and say, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fight one more. Oh, how his life would have been different in that moment. It changed David. It changed his life. It changed his dynasty. And it changed the world. Nathan comes to him. I think there's something said for what Nathan does in two different ways. As I said a moment ago, he tries to get his attention with, with a story. David, Nathan tries to come at David not from a frontal attack, but he tries to appeal to David's reason for just a moment. Think with me just a moment, David. There's this guy. He's got one lamb. And by the way, that one lamb, it grew up with him. He nourished it and he cherished it. And that lamb lay its head in his lap. And that lamb ate from its table. Now, we may not get that, but there was something to that culture in which, in which there, there was that kind of a relationship between a shepherd and his lambs. In fact, that lamb ate in his table, lay his head in his lap. Of course, he's not talking about a lamb. He's talking about Bathsheba. Okay, daddies with daughters. Do you see this picture? Here's your daughter. And you have raised her from birth. You have nurtured her. You have cherished her. You've done everything you can to protect her, to provide for her. Her purity, her life is in your hands. And you've done everything you can to make sure that she has been taken care of. She lays her head in your lap. I remember when Cam was a little girl, and I would be sitting on the couch, and she would come and she'd lay on the couch and lay her head in my lap. And I'd just begin to scratch her back. And then eventually I'd be up to her head, rub her head, and just run my fingers through her hair. Just rub my fingers through her hair. And what I was telling her is, you're mine. Nobody can have you until I give you away. Nourishing and cherishing her, protecting her, caring for her. And she eats at the table. You get that, dads? You see that? That's how Uriah cares for Bathsheba. Jody will now sit in front of me as we watch the TV, and she says, Will you rub my head? And I'll take my hands, and I'll rub her head, and I'll rub my fingers through her hair. And I'll rub her shoulders. What I'm telling her is, she's mine. I'll protect you. I'll care for you. I'll provide for you. She eats at my table. Husband, you get that? And now you have this rascal who has all the power in the kingdom to command all he wills. And he comes with a harem full of lambs at his beck and call and his choice and says, I want your one. And I'm going to use it as a sacrifice, as a meal for my stranger over here. David got it. David got the story. He understood how, how horrific that was. 
And as I said a moment ago, he was enraged and said, that man ought to die. Now I began that soliloquy by saying, I appreciate the approach that Nathan had at first here. He's trying to appeal to David's reason. And trying to help David see, trying to lead David all along the way to help David see, do you see what you did so that David, by his own self-incrimination, would say, oh man, I blew this. Why in the world did I do that? I played such the fool. I was such an idiot here. Why did I do, why was such stupidity? Why did, why the world, and just beats himself up because finally he sees through this nice, polite approach that Nathan gives to him, what he had done. But he doesn't. And here's the second approach to Nathan that sometimes becomes the essential. And this is how you have to be, conf- be willing to confront with the Word of God. He said, David, you're the man. You're the man. And David became contrite. But Nathan said, God has forgiven you, but the child will die. And he writes that psalm of contrition, of heartbreak, Psalm 51. You have to be willing to be be confronted by the Word of God. You have to be willing to confront the Word of God, too. Third thing that we see is... You have to be willing to, conf- to, co- to comfort with the Word of God as well. It's not enough to be confronted. It's not enough to confront. I wonder sometimes if we, and that may be as brethren, and we as preachers of the gospel, sometimes become a little bit too, too excited to confront somebody and tell them you're the man. But the book, the same story says, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and chapter 24 and 25, that he also comforted with the word of God look at what he will say in second and uh first Samuel chapter uh second Samuel second Samuel second Samuel chapter 12 verse 24 the David comforted Bathsheba with his wife and went into her and lay with her so she bare a son and called his name Solomon and now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah Beloved of the Lord. He calls his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. You see what happened there? He comes, he's confronted with the word of God, but now he says, the word came by the hand of Nathan the prophet. From whom? From God. Name him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. Do you see it's not just enough to confront someone or be confronted? You have to take that same word and comfort somebody. I'm reminded of the word of God itself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4. Here's the God of all comfort who comforts us and we comfort another. Do you see how it flows? The comfort flows through us. The comfort flows through us. But then at least in this point, the last thing we learn from Nathan is he was essential to spoiling a devious plot. Again, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 1. In 1 Kings chapter 1, and beginning in, in verse 5, 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 5, listen to how this unfolds. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. You see what he's done? Saying, I will be king, and he prepared for himself chariots, horsemen, 50 men to run before him. 
And his father had not rebuked him at any time, saying, Why have you done this? He was also very good-looking. His mother had him to Absalom, also had borne him Absalom. Do you get that? Absalom's good-looking, and Adonijah's good-looking. But there was something that was said there that's pivotal. And none of this had David restrained him. As great a king as David was, one of his failings as father is that he never restrained his children. He did not restrain Amnon, he did not restrain Adonijah, he did not restrain Absalom. And as a result of that, misery come to his house. And so then, Nathan finds out about that. And he says, go into Bathsheba, go into him. So verse 15, Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king. The king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did homage to the king. Then the king said, what is your wish? Then she said to him, my lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, saying, As surely Solomon your son will reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now look, Adonijah has become king, and now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. And he sacrificed all these things. What Nathan is doing is telling Adonijah, telling Bathsheba, Look, what's that? Do you see the devious part that's taking place? We must, with the word of God, also be willing to expose the deviousness of Satan and the plots and the schemes that he gave. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, he says he gave some to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers with a view to equipping saints to the work of service, work of ministry, and edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to a measure to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we be no longer henceforth tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness of men. The word of God exposes, exposes the devious schemes of Satan. And that's what Nathan did. So what are some takeaways? As Jordan would say, as we walk this all off the page, what are some personal things that we can use in this? What can we walk off the page with this? Well, first of all, let's go back to Nathan himself. We must be willing to be, be corrected. I'm not exactly sure how this all took place in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David comes to Nathan and says, Hey, I've got this plan. And Nathan says, hey, that sounds good to me. Go with it. And then God comes to Nathan and says, no, 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 that's not what I want. This is what I want. And Nathan then says, well, wait a minute, Lord. I've already told David he can do it. I'm your prophet. I speak for you. I've already told David it's okay with me if you go do this. I can't go back to him and tell him, no, you can't do this. I've already told him you can. But Nathan was a man that was willing to be corrected. If that's how that scene unfolded, Nathan was a man who was willing to listen to God. And be corrected so that God's plan can be fulfilled, not Nathan's plan, not David's plan be fulfilled. David was also, Nathan was also a man. He was also a man who was able to build others up. Throughout the story, he never, he never, he never reminds David. He didn't come to David and say, David, I look, listen. Do you remember what you did? Do you, do you remember what you did with Bathsheba? Before you get too high on yourself, let, let me just remind you. Do you remember what the, that night, do you remember that day, that night that you did that with Bathsheba? you remember what you did to Uriah? Let me tell you, you can't forget this. No, Nathan didn't rub David's face in it. Nathan had told him, God's already forgiven you. And Nathan has moved on. And now David's moving on. And so when Solomon is born in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, after the death of the child, 
At the death of the child, Nathan goes away until Solomon's born. Then Nathan comes back and says, Naming Jedediah, beloved of God. And then come back and say, Okay, Nathan. I mean, David, okay, buddy. Okay. Remember that first child. He's dead because of you. It's your fault. Remember what you did. Listen. Listen. Don't do that again. Let me just take and rub your face in it just a little bit more here until you get it. And let me remind you how bad it was. That's not what he does. He says to David, Solomon is the one God has chosen. He's the one from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, that shall sit on your throne. He was able to take David, and as a result of that, David was touched by what Nathan said, and he wrote Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my soul. That's how he comforts him. So Nathan was a man willing to be corrected, but he was also a man who was able to comfort others as well. But there's one last thing about Nathan I said in the beginning that was rather obscure. David's dead, Solomon's dead, Hezekiah is now on the throne. Hezekiah is now setting the temple in place. All the fixtures, all the worship is set in place in the temple. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25, as Hezekiah begins to set things in place, he speaks to the Levites about how they are to arrange the worship and the particular instruments they are supposed to use. And it says it came by Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet. The commandment of Nathan the prophet is. Here's what I think you have as the book of Nathan. The commandment of God through Nathan the prophet to David is. How did David know to use the instruments? And how did Hezekiah know what to set in place for the Levites to use the instruments? Because of the commandment of God that came through Nathan. And here's my point about that. We don't know how Nathan died. Don't know when he died. But Nathan's legacy lived longer than his life. Because Hezekiah remembered the words of Nathan. Now, in the beginning, I said, here's the conclusion. Everybody needs Nathan. Everybody needs someone that is willing to be confronted with the word of God first. You, which are spiritual, consider yourself that you also be overcome. So you might save a soul from death. We all would do well to listen a little longer and speak a little less. We all need a Nathan who will what? Who will confront us but also comfort us and help save us from the spoilings of Satan. We all need Nathan in our lives. Have you had someone like that? Have you had someone like Nathan to David that, that had the, not, the, not the guts, not the guts. Fearless encourager, two different things. They're not equals. Not about someone who has the guts just to come poke their finger in your eye. Not, but the love, the love that Nathan demonstrates to David three different times. Do we have someone like that in our lives that's willing to just be honest with us? I mean, just think about this. When David goes into Bathsheba, goes into David, when Nathan goes into Bathsheba because of the affair with David, 
Who's he talking to? When it finally gets down to where you crack the nut, who's he talking to? When you get down and say, you're the man. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the king. And what's the king have the power to do if he doesn't like what you said? He can snap your head off without breathing a breath. He can take your life. And Nathan had the love and the courage to go into David. Now, yes, he was carrying the commandment of God. I give you that. But he could have shrunk from that and said, no, God, God, get somebody else to do that. I'm not going to the king and tell him that. Whoa, not me. See what he's done? I'm not, I'm not confronting him with this. Do we have someone in our lives who will love us like that? Not love us enough to confront us and walk away. Not someone who would just be there to poke their finger eye and say, you're the man. But that someone who also, like Nathan, take and lift David up and also not remind us of all of our flaws and our failings. And who, because of our own blindnesses, will also be able to spoil the schemes of Satan himself. Do we have someone like Nathan in our lives? As I said, Nathan seems to have been the prophetic architect of the kingdom of Israel. All on the way, he's not simply the prophet for David. He's the prophet for Solomon. And a prophet for the kingdom. And had Nathan not gone to save David, just where? And from whom might the Messiah have come? Because when you open the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, guess who's there? Bathsheba and Solomon. Until you come to Jesus. See, he's not really the prophet for Solomon. He's the prophet for the Messiah. And Solomon was once going to build a temple, but it's not the temple. The temple will be built by the son of David. Jesus the Christ. It's just not just do we have a Nathan. We have a Nathan. Because we have a Savior. What a powerful man. A man of powerful influence throughout the Old Testament story. I hope you're moved with this man. I hope we can all learn the lessons from him and aspire to be like Nathan. But as he's the prophet of the Messiah, the Messiah has come. And he says, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And calls all men everywhere to repent and confess him as Lord and to be baptized for the mission of his sins, for the mission of your sins. And his blood will wash away our sins. If we can help you, once you come while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. 
come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.